Hello. Welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. I am David McHale, communications specialist for UNCDF. For those who listened to the previous podcast with Esther Pan Sloan, thank you very much. And for those who haven't listened and would still be interested in listening, you can find that on our social media platforms. Today, we have both our policy advisor and really someone who has emerged uh, as a thought leader on a specific item of development finance. I'm referring to Samuel Horitz, policy advisor for UNCDF. We're going to talk today about blended finance, and I won't preamble long about it because that's why we have an expert and a thought leader here to talk to us both, or beyond just both, about blended finance, its challenges, why it's not necessarily the panacea that governments and organizations may think that it is, and what we can do or how we can at least consider possibilities to drive blended finance and by extend the investment capital that it catalyzes to the LDCs, to the least developed countries, specifically to drive SDG achievement and to fulfill the promise of the SDGs to leave no one behind. So with that, let me say welcome. Thanks, David. It's really great to be here, and I'm glad that you finally got this podcast off. I think it's really exciting. So I think just to start basically with how you define blended finance, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the report that was just launched. So congratulations on the new edition of the blended finance report. But if you could just start with the definition as you see it of blended finance. No, this is a great place to start, and and it's really important definitions. I think sometimes people can roll their eyes and say, well, why are we talking about that? And it really matters because a lot of the times I get the first response to the report, people say as well, we've been doing this forever. Why are we talking about this now? And that's actually a really good conversation starter because in many ways, we're not talking about anything new. We're talking about what many development banks, what you know, many international organizations have been doing for a long time anyway, which is essentially combining in the same transaction simultaneously some sort of public money and private money to support a deal that has development impact. And without the combination of those two sources of finance, that deal otherwise wouldn't take place because the private investor will look at it and say, well, actually, it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't really meet the return requirements we need. What's really happened is that about four years ago in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, the Addis Ababa Action Agenda was agreed to. And it's sort of, in a sense, got seven different buckets of kinds of finance that need to work together in order to meet the sustainable development goals. And without the financing equation right, you're not going to get the development equation right either. So the two really need to work together. And when you add up all the sort of different kinds of finance that is needed to meet the different goals, you realize actually there's a big gap. You look at the available finance in terms of domestic resources that we generate through taxation, most noticeably. You look at the resources available through um, you know, official development assistance, ODA, aid money, and you add that up and, and you add in FDI flows, different kinds of remittances, and there's still this big gap compared to the ambition contained in the sustainable development goals, particularly this idea of zero, 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 meaning eradicate poverty, getting to zero. So there's a really big ambition and the financing isn't there. So when you look at these gaps, this question of, well, how do we take the small amount of aid money that we have relative to the overall size of of, of the need, and can we use that money to catalyze additional private finance? Uh, There's all this capital out there. We know there's something like $80 trillion in assets out there. How do we take even a small fraction of that and align that with the SDGs? And that's where blended finance comes in as being potentially a really exciting solution as a way to leverage small amounts of aid money to bring in private money for deals that have development impact. 
So thank you for that start. It's a great way to unpack the conversation that we're having. And I think from that standpoint, I think it lends to a broader conversation about whether you want to call it the global financial architecture, whether you want to call it the finance for development architecture. Can you just give... I mean, not exactly the easiest question to ask, but can you give just a sense of what that architecture looks like and why it is impacting LDCs the way that it is? No, this is so this is really important because the, essentially at the heart of this question is this idea of is the financing architecture as we have it now lined up to meet the ambition that we have, not just in terms of the quantity. There's a lot of focus on quantity. This term going from billions to trillions is the is the refrain we keep hearing. And that's obviously really important. We need more money, but we also need better quality money. And what I mean by better quality money is not only money that's more predictable and longer term, but money that's also aligned with impact. So um, quantity is important, but so is quality. And where the quality issue becomes particularly important from an organization where we sit at UNCDF is this question of geography and its allocation. So what that means, for example, is we look at the world's 47 least developed countries. So is the financing reaching those countries? And then within those countries, if we sort of peel the onion further, within those countries, where is financing going? Is it going towards secondary cities? Is it going towards SMEs that can't access finance because they're too big for a microfinance organization or too small for a commercial bank to fund them? Call it the missing middle. So you've got all these geographic gaps, these sector gaps. If you look at all those gaps together, you realize that actually not only is not enough money being allocated towards development, towards the SDGs, currently, even though the resources are there, but there are these big gaps in particular. And last year we saw uh, 2018 over 2017 in particular, uh, the first time in a number of years where ODA to least developed countries declined by almost 3% in real terms. So that's a big decline. And that just shows that on the public resource side, the resources which have been stagnating for a while have now declined. Whether that's a predictor of future trends is an open question. But it does mean that if we're relying on public resources alone to meet the SDGs, we're not going to fill that gap. Public resources, I will just say here, remain incredibly important. They do all sorts of things that private resources will never do. There's policy support, technical assistance, free schooling, education, vaccines, social protection systems, a whole range of really essential goods and services provided. But, but, but the question is, how do we bridge the gap? And that's where this question of private finance comes in. And what we're seeing right now is the way the architecture is set up is that a lot of the institutions that exist, particularly northern-based institutions, development finance institutions, multilateral development banks, north and the south, many of them have uh, an objective to achieve commercial returns. They're looking for deals where they can generate, generate a return. Those deals tend to be very impactful. So this is not a question on, the, on, the, on their quality. I think when we talk about blended finance, we talk about the synergy in the context of de-risking. But clearly, there's more of a synergy in terms of what public money can do versus private. And you already touched on in terms of the public, but can you expand on that a little more in terms of how these different funding streams can actually basically reinforce each other in terms of what they can do to drive development? Yeah, so I think there was in some corners a takeaway from the Addis Ababa Action Agenda, to which I earlier referred, that there now needs to be a focus on private finance. And that is true but not at the exclusion of public finance. The idea is really that you need to look at different funding streams and see how they can work together in complementary ways. Public finance has a very different mandate from private finance. Private finance is profit-oriented, is revenue-generating. Public finance isn't. So there'll be certain kinds of things that public finance is geared to do that private finance isn't geared to do, and vice versa. What's interesting about blended finance is, is to sort of find that sweet spot where a project has development impact, it has a social 
good that's being provided um, or a social service that's being provided that's aligned with the SDGs or the goal of leaving no one behind, but it doesn't quite in its current form meet the return, the profit generating requirement of a private investor. So this question then becomes, well, if you put in a bit of public money, can that adjust the risk return consideration of that private investor? And, and that's where blended finance comes in. So what you find is probably not very much blending taking place in sectors like biodiversity or conservation. In fact, even in, in the health sector education, there are blended deals taking place, but very little. Those often tend to be the kinds of areas where public finance is going to be providing access to healthcare or hospitals that are primary service. If you think about hospitals that are for-profit, there are not many for-profit kinds of investments in, in the countries that we're talking about. So you typically see and the data that we have in our report backs this up, that most blended finance deals take place in LDCs in areas to do with banking and financial services, clear profit orientation there, and also very clear impact, because you can see that by extending financial services, you're enabling SMEs or poor families or smallholder farmers to access resources to improve their lives. Um, and the second area is around energy. And again, very clear impact there, you know, access to energy is SDG 7. Um, and again, a very clear profit orientation, revenue generating streams can be generated there. We also find a lot of blended deals taking place in areas like uh, sectors like infrastructure. So these are, again, you know, f areas where you'll have a profit, but there'll be certain areas where the private sector doesn't need an incentive and they're going anywhere. And they've been doing that for decades, if not hundreds of years. So you'll see the private sector investing in real estate or in shopping centers or in SMEs or in certain kinds of companies that they're doing anyway. Foreign direct investment is building factories all over the world with, or domestic direct investment is building factories without the need for any sort of inducement. So when we come to blend of finance, we're talking about those very sort of that subset of deals where there is a profit orientation, but doesn't quite cross the threshold of meeting the return requirement. So then in that regard, what are the safeguards that can ensure that blended finance is not going to support sectors that lack that larger transformative effect that we're looking for? Or in the opposite, what are the incentives or the catalysts to make sure that blended finance are going to the industries and the sectors that you would want them to go? So this is the $60 billion. I mean, this is the heart of, you know, what's so complicated about structuring these deals. If you just speak to an average person, you explain what you're doing. The first question they always ask is, well, why are you doing this? Why are you using public money to essentially subsidize private gain? And this is a really important question to be asked. And part of the answer, or a big part of the answer, is really to say, well, what are we trying to achieve? If the use of public money brings in private resources that achieves a bigger development impact, this question of additionality, this word additionality keeps coming up. If the additionality of the impact is bigger than it would be otherwise, and that the social gain is bigger than the private gain in a sense, then that's actually arguably a good use of that money. Sure. Where it gets really complicated is, and there's a lot of thinking being done about this, is well, how do you measure a priori? So before you do a deal, what that development impact is going to be, and is it going to be greater than would have been otherwise the case? And that's actually a really complicated question because long-term development impacts, particularly development impacts, which are so contingent on you know society and tailored to the particular environment in which they're taking place, unpredictabilities are, are built into this. How do you measure a priori what those are going to be over the long term, over the duration of a project, when there's so many different variables that can come into play? And this is why monitoring and evaluation and mixed methods approaches are really important to really try to get this. But in a sense, to the safeguard question you're getting, it's really important. It means we really need to be thinking very clearly from the very beginning, what is the SDG impact? What are the screens we have in place to do market assessments to make sure that we're not really... We don't want to unduly distort local markets by supporting one company as opposed to another company or another project and therefore sort of tilting the market in their favor. So 
are we doing the market assessments? Are we making sure that there's impact on whatever is important to that particular organization? So supporting women or rural smallholder farmers. Is this a project that's just going to support you know, the building of a shopping center. And maybe by creating jobs, there is an SDG impact there. So these questions, you know, become quite complicated, quite philosophical to some extent. There's another safeguard. So that's sort of on the development and additionality side. There's another safeguard, which is really important, but comes back to the same question of why we're using public money to subsidize private gain. And this question of what is the level of that subsidy? People don't always talk of subsidies, but they often talk about sort of support or concessionality. And what this means is when you're providing that incentive, that inducement to the private sector actor, how are you pricing that? What level are you providing? If you don't provide enough of an inducement, investor will walk away. If you provide too much, they'll be at the table, but you're in a sense subsidizing private gain. You kind of want to get that baby bear's porridge, not too hot, not too cold level of that just right level of it's enough to bring them into the deal, but not too much that you're providing too much of a public subsidy. That sounds really nice in theory. In practice, getting that level of concessionality right, that support right, is actually very complicated, particularly in some of the countries we're working at where there aren't many pricing signposts to act as reference points. There may not be a huge amount of bond issuances, if any. There may not be a domestic stock market. So getting those pricing levels is right. Other DFIs may have done deals where they've gone through this, but often that information is proprietary or it isn't shared because the DFIs are concerned that other actors then want the same level of terms, even if the market has evolved, even if it's a different sector. So there isn't always a huge amount of information sharing on on the pricing. So those are sort of these two safeguards, I think, that are really important principles around additionality on the development side and the financial side. There are other safeguards that I think are really important. Questions of transparency, grievance mechanisms, consulting local communities that are being affected, I think are really critical to this. Particularly when you've got big infrastructure projects, you want to make sure local communities are involved and have a say in the projects that impact their lives. I think this question of ownership is really important, particularly when we're using concessional resources, that any project that takes place in a country respects national ownership and is aligned with national priorities. It's not doing something the government is, isn't you know, identifying as a priority. I, I think this question of having the right capacities in place at a national level to make sure that there's a fair sharing of risk and reward. But this question of subsidy, but often what happens in these deals, if the negotiating power is so much tilted in favor of the private investor, is the deal structured in a way that they benefit from the ultimate gain more than that? And sometimes it's the other way around, where the country itself has the private sector over the barrels. But it's really about having a fair sharing uh, of, of risk and rewards. So these are some of the principles that, in a sense, can act as safeguards for some of this um, for, for some of these deals. So I'd like to move to the report. Again, congratulations on launching the updated version of a really a fantastic report that was launched last year, uh, Blended Finance in the Least Developed Countries. And I know that there's top-line statistics relating to this report, great data regarding specifically the blended finance flows going to LDCs. But I'm going to ask you to highlight one or two of the points that you think an audience, even an audience that is deep in this space, would find interesting or, in fact, surprising in terms of blended finance in the LDCs. So the data we have right now goes from 2012 to 2017. It's the data that measures the amount of private finance mobilized by official development finance. And I mention that because it gets back to this definition question. So people use different definitions. This is really aligned with the OECD definition, which includes concessional and non-concessional. So different definitions to what others may use. But those are the data we have, and it's really the gold standard of data that exists. 
the report last year had data from 2012 to 2015, so this latest iteration has an additional two years. I think maybe three data points for me stand out as particularly interesting. One of them is that last year, we've, you know, over 2012 to 2015, 7% of the private finance mobilized benefits at LDCs. We now looked at a six-year trend, and the figure is 6%. There is a big caveat, which is that the IFC hasn't coded their country allocations for 2016 and 17. So we don't know the full extent of the financing that takes place, and IFCs obviously are very important and, and very significant player in this space. But the data we have shows 6%. So it may not be a decrease in fact over what we had initially, but it's very interesting to show that there probably hasn't been a huge ramping up in blended finance deals in LDCs over the last few years. And that probably speaks to the fact that these deals are just, they may not always exist. The ticket sizes may typically be smaller than other countries. The risk appetite of some DFIs may keep them away from some of these markets. All these sort of issues, some of the issues we, we've discussed before. So that's an interesting sort of sure. uh, benchmark to keep in place that, that we're still seeing a sort of, in a sense, stable-esque kind of level of blended finance taking place in LDCs. The second finding, which I think is interesting, is that in the original data set from last year, when we looked at the source of private finance, so the $5.5 billion benefiting LDCs, where was that private finance coming from? And the second biggest source of that private finance was domestic investors. Often it's domestic banks being incentivized through credit lines that they're, you know, that they're being given. In a sense, this speaks to the fact that a, there are domestic investors with excess liquidity willing to invest in these things in these markets. And B, that that there is value to that. We shouldn't only think of private investors. Money, money is money in, in a sense. But if you can get domestic uh, actors involved in some of these deals, it really supports the development of, of local markets. So this is something to be pursued. When we look at the latest data over the six-year trend, actually that's, that's declined quite precipitously. So there's a much smaller amount of private finance being mobilized from domestic resources. We don't know a priori why that's the case because the conditions for the resources being mobilized aren't part of the survey. It's just really sort of the end result that, that you find. But it is interesting to see that there has been this decline. At the same time, the average amount of um, per deal being mobilized from domestic resources, so the average investment from a domestic investor has gone up quite significantly from, from, from last time around. So we're seeing small amounts of money, but bigger deals or bigger deal sizes being supported. So that's an interesting, interesting. And then I think the third thing, which I think is interesting, is to do with instrumentation, which is that guarantees were both in the former and the current data set, they remain the, the biggest mobilizer of private finance. And I think this speaks to the, the role that guarantees can really play. And often it's an underutilized tool and can be quite complicated to structure, but guarantees play a really important role in mobilizing private finance in, in these markets. So I, I think between obviously this report, but in particular the last report, clearly it's not just a tool of thought leadership. This has been a tool of engagement that UNCDF has had with government partners. And without asking for specific government partners, I'd love to hear a little bit about the government engagement with this report and the larger discussion about blended finance. Where have those discussions gone? What are their concerns? What are the questions that they're asking? Where do they need support? So, I mean, the reason we did this report was we found that as more and more people were talking about blended finance, there was no data, it was white space on what was happening in LDCs, where mm -hmm. was blended finance happening. At a very high aggregate level, obviously it looked at the data, the 7% figure they had last year, but they hadn't yet disaggregated those data. And then we complemented that with a whole bunch of research, analysis, case studies, you know, additional work that we did. So by filling that space with this report, 
what we found actually is that there's a huge appetite to be discussing this because a lot of the DFIs are being pushed now to work in riskier markets, in emerging markets, in frontier markets, more than they have been in the past. And for many of them, the questions that we've highlighted are questions that they're grappling with. So in a sense, the report, we hope, we didn't pretend to have any definitive answers on anything. You know, we really wanted to use it to stimulate a discussion. And what we found is that that's been the case, that it's been very well received. And I think a lot of the partners are using it, in a sense, kind of as a benchmark. A bit back to your safeguard question, we looked at different stages of a project life cycle. We came up with things to do, things not to do. And I think those have been useful and well-received on those working on these deals to think through as they're structuring some of these deals. Again, we, we acknowledge some of the complexities and, and complications in these deals, and it's a work in progress ourselves, and we continue to learn. But we found from the partners that that's one thing that they've really received very well is the sort of the thoughtfulness and the step-by-step -step approach that we've presented along with the data. The second thing I think that's been very interesting is in a sense, the report has laid down a challenge. We include an action agenda in the report. And the first item of this five-point action agenda is really to encourage some of the DFIs and MDBs where blended finance is appropriate. And I emphasize that because, again, it may not be appropriate in many, many cases, but where it is appropriate to really try not to ignore these LDC markets and, and really try to engage. And that may require higher risk tolerance and, and some creative thinking. The private sector window at the World Bank is a really interesting example of this $2.5 billion structure that's been set up to really incentivize IFC and MEGA to move towards markets that otherwise they may find uh, trickier to work in. So those kinds of things we think are really interesting ways to move the needle in terms of getting more of these transactions in LDCs. And then from the LDC governments themselves, we found there's a real strong appetite to really start looking at this as an additional funding option that can complement the other funding sources that they have. And I think one of the issues that we found in our report, we did four background paper studies in four LDCs, and the discussions we've had with those governments confirm that they're not always aware of the different sources out there, where the pots of concessional resources are. They may be aware of the actors in their country, but may not have a holistic view on what bucket of financing does this fit in. So really helping governments think through not just the funding sources that are out there, but also internally what kind of structures do they need or systems or institutions in place to be able to engage meaningfully in the space. Sure. And we go through in the report talking a little bit about this issue of building capacity to identify, structure, source, analyze these deals, going back to this question of fairly sharing the risk and rewards. So I think that kind of entry into the discussion has been very helpful for both the, the sort of DFI, bilateral government, and the LDC government. That, that's the feedback we're getting uh, anyway. I think, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a great point because I think when we're talking about this space, I'm sure too, Again, people, those who are not as as deeply versed in the mechanics of it, it's easy to think that blended finance, it's just basically an investment vehicle. And in reality, there's a lot more skills that are needed in order to optimize it, whether it's market scanning and scoping, investment pipeline, what have you. So so thanks for bringing that up. We're, we're down to the last couple of questions. So the penultimate question I'll ask is, can we shift gears? And do you mind just talking about the journey that brought you to UNCDF? Oh, right. I've been at the UN for a very long time. I think George Bush, the junior, was the president when I, when I joined the UN in 2002. And one of my first field postings was in Yemen, where actually uh, I didn't work for UNCDF, but UNCDF had this big decentralization program there that was very interesting because they were reaching extending services to far-flung populations is quite complicated. And this decentralization program saw itself as a vehicle to kind of bring different services to kind of far-flung districts. 
so my interest was piqued in UNCDF in one of my in my first field posts. So I've been following the work and interacting with it in different ways. And sort of fast forward a number of years, I was working in Ethiopia where UNCDF was ramping up its presence and was going through the process of developing the UN. I was working in the coordination office, working on the, the four-year development framework that the UN has. And UNCDF had strengthened its presence there and was engaging quite a lot with UNCDF as it was articulating its four-year vision for its support to Ethiopia. And then this position became available, and I thought this would be a great way to sort of marry the work that I've done on some of the policy work in the field, thinking through some of these financing questions and working with that on finance. And, and I will say that when I joined and, and where we are now, the organization has shifted a lot. It continues to evolve really rapidly, which is one of the great things about UNCDF. It's continuously building on what it does best, but adding on these really interesting areas of work. So the work that I was doing four years ago, which was very much engaging in these discussions around the Alice Ababa Action Agenda, SDGs, Paris Agreement, at the very sort of high policy level and seeing how UNCDF can contribute and then bring that stuff back to own work, has very much shifted now towards this kind of thought leadership work and finance. So as the organization has evolved, it's been really interesting to evolve and, and sort of try to learn myself with that because I didn't have a hugely strong financing background. So I, I've learned a huge amount going along that journey myself. That's very impressive. So I guess we'll close with a final question and it goes back to one of your previous answers. I think, and it's a really unfair question to ask, which is to the extent that you can highlight a few factors that are necessary to create at least the potential for a successful blended finance framework. What's needed from, say, the public sector, the private sector? What are the baseline elements that you would need in order to have a blended finance project or situation that could really, again, have the transformative effects that we would want to have? You know, it comes back to some of these principles we discussed earlier. I think, you know, first of all, you need a project. To get to a project that's investable, you need to be able to have projects that are investable. And that sounds like a silly thing to say. But what I mean by that is that one of the big challenges we keep hearing from partners, and we ourselves face UNCDF, is that getting projects to the point, even if they're really good ideas, even if the entrepreneurs are amazing, getting to the point of bankability. I was this morning on a call with some bankers from South Africa, and they were saying, you know, typically we support SMEs if they've got three years of audited financial statements. So you can imagine, or, or collateral, preferably a building or sometimes a movable asset. So you need certain requirements to be able to access financing. And a lot of the entrepreneurs we're working with in least developed countries don't have those requirements. So a lot of work is required in the very first instance to actually build projects to get to the point of bankability, providing technical assistance support, helping them develop a business plan, helping them put in place the right governance structure. So that's sort of even before we're talking about financing or deal structure. And then at the actual structuring phase, it's really, I think, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. It's really just trying to say, well, what's the right financing structure for this particular deal, who are the right partners, what what are the right types of instruments, what does it need, and then really just doing those SDG impact assessments as well, all those other safeguards we discussed earlier around transparency and consultation, I, th I think are really important. I, and then I would just say that, that I don't think it ends there, and I'll finish with this with two points. The one is that even after a deal is closed, I think there can be a continued need for support to those businesses to help them continue to grow and, and meet their impact that they had shown as a potential that they could reach. And then I think secondly, and for me this is a really critical part of the whole piece, is to really have monitoring and evaluation and knowledge sharing going throughout the process, all these three stages from pipeline development to deal structuring to sort of the post-financing phase. And this is really important because a lot of people are asking, and I think it's a really interesting question, why are we even doing this? The transaction costs are really high. The volume we're talking about isn't massive in terms of the need. Why not help countries improve their overall business climate? And then we don't have to worry about 
going through a particular transaction, investors will come in like they come into Europe or they come into America and invest because they see opportunities there without the need for public inducement. And the answer is, well, first of all, it takes a really long time to improve business climates. And second of all, these things don't have to be in parallel. They can be in sequence. And this gets to the heart of if you can use a blended finance transaction to narrow the gap between the perception of a risk and the reality of risk. It's sort of this band-aid. If, if it can help narrow the gap and you can take those lessons and share them with investors so they can see the opportunities in those markets, but also share those lessons with governments and support government-led reforms, then you're starting to change the perception of a market, but also using those lessons to help governments make their markets more investable in the long term. So I think really thinking holistically is really important. Otherwise, what we'll see is a lot of transactions taking place that don't add up more to the sum of each individual part. I can't think of a better way to close. Sam, thank you so very much for your time. And again, congratulations on the launch of the report. Thanks, David. Pleasure being here. That was Samuel Horitz, policy advisor with the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications team at UNCDF. Thanks for your time. Another episode will be coming soon. And thanks. Thanks.